All right, today I am here with Paul Moore of Wellings Capital. Paul, uh, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, same here, Greg. It's an honor to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Wellings, and you have a very um, interesting mission that you guys are getting involved with as part of your company. So why don't you tell us a little bit about all that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Wellings Capital, we were, I mean, I after years of doing single family rentals and re lots at residential lots at Smith mountain Lake, small subdivision, all these things. I, I ended up in a, uh, doing a ground up multifamily in North Dakota during the oil boom. Then we did another one. Then my partner went on and did a Hyatt hotel and that was a little difficult. So I decided to stay involved in multifamily. I wrote a book that was humbly titled, <clears throat> the perfect investment. And uh, I decided I would stay in multifamily the rest of my life as a syndicator. But Greg, we had such a hard time finding deals. And I'm in a mastermind with a lot of the well-known multifamily guys, there's eight of us. And, you know, I, I just was listening to what they were paying for, you know, these deals. And I was seeing myself get outbid by 20, 30% when we underwrote as, as well as we could. And I just finally decided, you know, we really need to look, and I don't think I thought of it as clearly as I'm saying now, but in retrospect, what we were looking for were um, asset classes that have more mom and pop operators. You know, 93% of multifamily over 50 units is held by companies, and they've typically wrung a lot of the value out of those assets. However, 85 to 90% of mobile home parks are owned by mom and pops and 76% of self-storage are owned by independent operators. And, you know, a good portion of those are mom and pops. These mom and pop operators don't have the resources, the knowledge, or even the desire to increase income and maximize value. And they don't have to because you know, they've seen cap rates shrink, you know, compressed to maybe half of what they were a decade ago. And so between that and increasing their income, they've way more than doubled the value of their properties just by staying mediocre in many cases. And so the chance to acquire these type of assets and increase them, pay the seller a very fair price, and then maybe bundle them together to put them together for a, a, an institutional buyer was quite appealing. The problem was we didn't, you know, we were multifamily. We didn't have a track record. We didn't have a team. We didn't have a background in these areas. And so we had about 120 investors at the time years ago. And we said, Hey, would you like us to go out and find some of these deals and put them together and we'll invest alongside you. And they said, yeah. So we became a due diligence partner for our investors. And we took that very seriously. And uh, we eventually put those together in a fund and we just rolled out our fourth fund, which is the Wellings Income Fund 3. We had a growth fund in there as well. And uh, so this is basically an income and growth fund. It has diversification across these two asset types, but potentially more. It has diversification across operators, geographies, and strategies. And so an investor can come in and say, invest $100,000 and we'll split it among, you know, last fund was about 78 assets in 20 plus states. So that that's how it works. And uh, it's been going very well for us so far. Yeah. What's the target raise for the fund? 
Uh, this one, we have a minimum target of 10 million. It's only 100 investors. It's a 3C1 accredited only fund. So uh, we think that um, our maximum will be around 20, 25 million. And this fund is going to acquire self-storage and multi, uh, mobile home parks? Yes, it's, we're starting out with uh, three operators and we have self-storage and mobile home parks already queued up to uh, acquire to acquire investments. And I should say, we're actually looking at a multifamily that we really like. Somebody has a really unique strategy and it's been well vetted by other investors. And so we're going to start due diligence on that next week. Awesome. Um, would you? Can you talk about the strategy at all or is it proprietary? Yeah, be glad to. Um, this operator, they'll go in and they'll find cities that have significant, I don't know if abatement's the right word, but significant tax abatement, I'll call it. Um, for operators bringing, you know, doing investments in certain neighborhoods and gentrifying areas, opportunity zones, et cetera. And they're able to negotiate in advance a 75 to 80% um, decrease in taxes. In addition to that, they're looking for assets that have um, at least $200 rent below market. And so the combination of those two allows them to go in raise rent some, maybe incrementally over a couple of years, and get that tax abatement from basically month one. And the combination of those two just provides a tremendous margin of safety, which is what we're looking for uh, when we do multifamily or any type of investment. So that, that's what they do. Uh, a friend of mine who does a lot of due diligence has invested with them 14 times. And so he's very confident in them. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, the tax credit strategy is huge and valuable. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So how does the fund work? What, what's your minimum investment? Uh, and how how does it work in terms of, you know, when somebody commits and you call the capital before you deploy all that? Yeah, so it's this is for accredited investors only, but it's also for qualified clients. Now, people, some people know what qualified purchasers are. That's a $5 million net worth. Qualified clients is a $2.2 million net worth or higher, uh, we put together, we only make the investments available when we're ready to place the capital immediately. So right now we're raising eight and a half million dollars that we already have pre-allocated. And so when that money comes in, we will turn around within days and deploy it all. We do not uh, take it in incremental tranches. We want investors to know there's no, you know, that they don't have to have cash sitting around waiting for the next capital call. And you already have the opportunities identified to deploy the capital? Yeah, we have Yeah, we have the eight and a half million identified. So what'll happen is when that closes up in a few days here, probably we'll turn around and start looking for the next opportunities and hopefully within one to two months say, okay, we have another 5 million open, let's say. Yeah, and you are a fund of funds. So your fund, you're not actually buying and operating assets, you're investing in other operators, right? Yeah, we are taking sort of the Warren Buffett strategy. You know, he only has 26 people last I checked in his company and they have, you know, they're top five or six companies in America size-wise and they, they look for fabulous operators and they trust them a lot. And that's what we do. We're looking for operators that we can trust who would never need or want our advice. They take the debt, they take the operations and we're looking for operators who get outsized returns, which allows us to get a piece, them to get a piece, and investors to get hopefully more than average returns. 
How many years in business typically is your, your average operator that you work with and look for? Great question. The one we just linked up with this last two weeks after knowing them for two years, uh, they started in self-storage. Their first principle of their three principles started in 1999. But the average would be pre-2008. We really like to see people who went through that last downturn. Um, so I would say the average would be about that. I would say, well, I'd say about 2004 might be the average as I think through our operators. Yeah. So you and I have a development background. Anybody uh, ground up that you're looking at or are these all existing um, assets? The closest thing to ground up, Greg, is we're doing a Boston self-storage facility that's currently a five-story uh, warehouse, sort of factory old warehouse, and it's being converted. So we'll call it a conversion. That'll take five months to build out surprisingly fast. And uh, they'll start leasing it up. It's extremely undersupplied market. So we really believe it'll be actually positive cash flow within just probably less than two years. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I, that's one of my favorite things to do. I've, I've done a lot of ground up, but I tell you, I love taking old buildings and making them new, repurposing them, yeah. adaptive reuse. That's just a lot of fun. Yeah, it really is. And it's quite profitable. The cash flow projected on this after you know two and a half years is actually quite strong. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, so you were telling me about your um, philanthropic side of the business in this program, that uh, new initiative that you're launching. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, I've never shared this on a podcast, I don't think, because we're still dialing it in. But Greg, did you know if you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits from Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, and tripled that number, added them all together, tripled that number. That's less than the annual revenues generated by human trafficking right now. This is very, very serious. And I didn't know about this when I heard about it five or six years ago. I started to research it. I've taken a couple trips to look into this. And, you know, I like to believe that if I was alive in the 1800s, I'd be, you know, like William Wilberforce, I'd be with him fighting against slavery, fighting for abolition. Or if I was an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for good civil rights. And this is a civil right. And this is slavery. It's happening right in front of us. So we decided we wanted to do something about this. So we're about to launch an initiative where every investor that invests with us, we free a slave. And we actually get, I mean, our goal, although we haven't dialed this in yet, is to actually get back with the investor, say, in three to six months and say, hey, on September 29th, there was a raid. They put this guy behind bars. And along with 10 other girls, a girl named such and such was saved in the Philippines. She's now separated from the streets and her captors. And she's, you know, she's over here in this, you know, working and this and that. We can't give all the details, of course. But our goal is that they would know that they were part of that. And we are really excited about rolling this out uh, in the coming, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah, that's awesome. It, that is a serious problem. A lot of people don't even know. You and I live in Virginia and, um, you know, it, it happens right here in our own neighborhoods, our own communities. You wouldn't think it, but chances are whoever's watching this, whoever's listening, it's happening in your neighborhood, in your town. I mean, it is a, it is a worldwide epidemic. And do you already have organizations identified you're going to work with? 
We have one for sure. I've been talking to Exodus Cry for years, and I want to say that publicly because Exodus Cry, ExodusCry.com, they've done an amazing job. They have a film called Nefarious. It came out about 2012, and it's significantly impacted a lot of people's thinking on this issue. In fact, the Canadian government altered some of their policies, you know, after hearing some of this testimony that the founder testified at the UN uh, in the fall of 2018 or 2019. Um, but uh, yeah, I've met with him and their team a number of times. They're going to be part of it. But there are other groups. There's one in Cambodia we're really excited about chatting with. We're actually meeting with them for the second time this coming Tuesday to, to try to dial this in. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's you know, it's a huge problem. And a lot of people think when you think human trafficking, a lot of times you think sex slavery, you know, things like that. But it's also drug trades. It's also mm -hmm. child labor. Um, yeah. It's it, it's pretty broad spread and wide reaching. And, uh, you know, it's not pretty at all. So um, thank you for doing that. That's that's really awesome. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thanks for giving me a chance to share about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um you know, getting back to the business front and what you're doing, I mean, you've done a lot of things and you've landed on this model, number one, of being a fund of funds. So take us on your journey a little bit in terms of why you've switched to that model and, and specifically the field and industries that you're in. Yeah, what we found is, you know, everybody can only be an expert in a few things. And, you know, it takes, you know, we've heard 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. And, we found that a lot of folks who are, you know, raising money and doing deals right now, whether it's in any arena in real estate, it's been so good for what, 11 years now that the rising tide has allowed all boats to raise. But um, that tide's going to go out someday, as Warren Buffett said, then we'll see who's skinny dipping. And so... <laughs> We wanted to be we wanted to be absolutely sure that we that our investors were investing with teams, with track records, with you know with with all everything dialed in and who had a tremendous track record since before the Great Recession um, in these asset types that I mentioned that have a lot of mom and pop operators. Well, we couldn't do that because we weren't obviously doing that before 2008, but we really thought that was the best strategy for our investors. And so with us sharing in the profits, but there being outsized profits, we thought that was the best way to go. And plus, as a large investor, we're often able to get a better deal with the operator. I mean, if we can bring them a check, I mean, we, we invested 23 million with one operator, actually more than that now. And uh, so we're able to get a better deal and we pass that along to our investors to sort of even it out. And it's better for the operator because rather than deal with, you know, 400 investors, they get, you know, one check, let's say per quarter from us. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, um, you know, there are a number of people out there in the multifamily space, especially doing the same kind of thing where they focus 100% on the capital, because there's a lot of great capital out there looking for good operators. And that's the, yeah. that's the hard thing to find are good, qualified, experienced, seasoned operators. Yeah, that's true. It, it really is true. And Sometimes the operators aren't the best capital raisers. And, uh, you know, I'm going to recommend this book uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Brian Burke, he's got this book, The Hands-Off Investor. The two reasons I'm bringing this up is it's a great, it's a very thick book with uh, 300 plus pages on how to do due diligence. And I recommend people get that before they invest. 
The second thing is Brian says, I don't know if I believe him, but he's told me many times, he said, I'm not really a good capital raiser. I'm not a good promoter. Well, my point with saying that is sometimes the best operators don't, aren't great promoters and you would never know about them. And so we've tried to sniff them out. We spend a lot of time, like I said before the show, we've had a 17 month run once where we didn't invest with anybody new. And so we spent a lot of time getting to know these folks. We do the due diligence that investors would do if they had the time, the team, and the knowledge to do that. That's what we, that's what we pride ourselves in. Yeah, Brian's a great guy. Great book. I've read it. I've been on a couple of podcasts with Brian and we've dialogued back and forth on bigger pockets a little bit. So yeah, okay. he, he's, he's sharp. He knows what he's doing. He really does. He really does. Yeah. Been at it a long time, same, you know, similar. I mean, he was a police officer, started flipping houses and raising money, you know, from uh, fellow officers to do deals. And he got into multifamily and scaled up from there. So it's a neat story. It really is. And and I'm going to ask you a question, if you don't mind. Uh, He's been at it 31 years. And so, Brian, you know, so in 2008, he'd already been at multifamily, I think, uh, probably about 10 years by then. Brian told me the other day that he, and I think he said this publicly too, I'm sure he did, that he wasn't able to raise much money at all in 2008, nine, around then. He, he, it was just very, very hard to raise money. And I wondered, you know, Greg, you were around then. What, what are we going to do if 2008, nine, 10 happens again? What, what do we, you know, all of this money coming in right now. And then I hear something like that. You know, I was in a related real estate business at the time, but I wasn't raising money from syndications. What 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 will we do if that happens again? Well, you know, I don't know that it can. So it's not it's not don't fight the Fed right now. It's go with the Fed, right? So yeah, um, everybody's heard don't fight the Fed. Now it's it's you know go with the Fed and. 0809 was a very different time. It was hard for anybody to raise money in real estate back then because the, you know, the market was falling apart. Um, mm-hmm. Post 2009-10, it was a little bit easier when asset prices had fallen and the opportunities were there. I don't know that we, we can see another situation like we saw back then because what happened was the Fed and the Treasury left the real estate market alone at large. They went after the banks and Wall Street. That's who they bailed out. They didn't they didn't bail out the retail real estate sector. And they understand that that was a big, big mistake. And a lot of damage was done to the economy from that. So mm-hmm. if you look at the path that we're on now, what was done in March of 2020 and how quick they acted and how um, large they acted uh, and they're continuing to act, I just don't know if we can ever have an event like that again. I don't think they're mm-hmm. gonna allow it. Yeah, well, great, great answer. What do you think? I mean, I mean, you're supposed to be interviewing me. I was going to talk about inflation, but <laughs> we can. I got this ten trillion dollar bill here from mm-hmm. uh, Zimbabwe, and yeah. uh, I don't think that's going to happen to the United States. But uh, it was fun to get that bill. I, I I do see, and I just see this as a unique time, Greg. You know, we've got the chance to lock in historically low interest rates. I mean, we we did a mobile home park deal the other day. Our operator did it, but we invested heavily with him. interest rate with interest only for a long, long time. And, you know, a long, pretty long term for commercial, you know, 10 or 12 year fixed rate. 
this is an incredible opportunity as rates continue to rise and therefore revenue and therefore NOI against a low fixed cost of debt. It just seems like a tremendous opportunity to be in real estate hedging against inflation. Yeah, it is. It is. And we've never seen rates like that in self-storage or mobile home parks. Multifamily, sure. We've seen 3% for a while, mm. but I think it's just recently come down to those levels in, in office, retail, storage. Right. I don't even know that it is in office and retail right now because that, that's been beaten up so badly. Yeah. Um, so when you look at real estate as a hedge against inflation, we're talking about housing, we're talking about storage, uh, and we're talking about mobile home parks, which falls under housing to a degree, multifamily. Right. Um, if you get into other sectors, it's not so much because it is so susceptible and related to the economy uh, as a whole and particularly inflation. And we're seeing the retail landscape change dramatically um, from, an, from a real estate standpoint. We're seeing the office sector change. We're not sure what those segments are going to look like moving forward, but everybody needs a place to live. Everybody has to go to the doctor. Everybody has to go to the dentist. And in almost any economy, everybody's going to go through at least the drive-through and get a cup of coffee, right? And something to eat. Right. So, uh, so you know, you're going to need those types of assets. And those are the ones in grocery stores. Those are the ones that survived did well. For now, gas stations. Eventually, that will be obsolete. Potentially, at some point, maybe in the next twenty or thirty years, we may not right. have fuel or gas-powered vehicles anymore. I don't know. So um, yeah, I think real estate is the ultimate hedge against inflation. I think in terms of a lot of people use Zimbabwe, you know, Venezuela, um, South Africa, a lot of these different countries where their currencies were so extremely devalued. Now Iran, um, you know, several of the countries around the world, that an event like that can't happen in the United States. And a lot of people can't wrap their minds around that. A lot of right. people say with the printing and the quantitative right. easing that the dollar is going to go to zero and it's losing value. It's just not going to happen. We are the world's largest GDP. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, we are the world's reserve currency, the United States right. dollar. And it will always be because of that reason, because regardless of your politics, we are a free economy. And the world global economy hinges on the United States. And when the chips are down and when everybody's running for the hills, they're going to the dollar. So um, that's one of the things that will save us. Now, if our uh, government ever changed and became, you know, a socialist or a you know, communist or a dictatorship, then yeah, absolutely that can change. But as long as it's a... Um, free government, a free economy, and regardless of how you view that statement, it's just not something that can happen. And mm -hmm. the people of this country won't let it happen. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And that's why I made the comment, you know, I don't think that's going to happen again, but I, or happen at all. But we did see, you know, we saw people when you and I were young, remember our grandparents and their our neighbors, their savings were ravaged, their pension plans, you know, they used to be able to get a pension check that covered two months rent, but now it would cover, you know, two weeks rent or mortgage instead. And, uh, you know, I think that smart investors now know that real estate is the way to go, especially with this low interest rate. It's incredible. It is. And the inflation prints that we've been seeing don't include rent. They don't include housing costs, right. things like that. So we're going to see some real, I mean, real, real inflation at the consumer levels, probably around 10 to 15% when you factor those things into the equation. And you know the, the Fed's not really talking about that or looking mm -hmm. at it. Um, the big difference, like you know, I talked to somebody earlier today about like the Great Depression and things like that. 
you know, those things just can't happen again because of the response from the government. And if you follow modern monetary theory, um, they have a pretty compelling argument. We've kind of been on that path really since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, and more particularly since 2008 and 9 of print, 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 and um, unlimited budgets, unlimited, uh, you know, debt and things like that. And as long as we can pr print to service that debt, um, there really is no consequence. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, it's Isn't well that said. It really is. I was sitting next to Doug Duncan I, and I didn't know him. We're not friends, but we, he, I was sitting next to him in an airport recently, actually on the way to Belize. We were both going to the real estate guys conference and he's the chief economist for Fannie Mae. And I said, come on, what, what do you really think about inflation? And he said, I really think it'll be five this year. And then it came out higher the next month. But, and again, he's talking about the average for the year, but he said, I think it'll be back in the three or four range next year. And he said, and I was like, you've got to be kidding just four. he said, well, Paul, he said, he didn't say my name. He didn't know my name, but he said, that's double the feds target. That's still really, really high. And I thought, oh yeah, you're right. But uh, he, he thinks after the chip crisis and after the latent, you know, the latent huge number of people traveling after waiting around so long after COVID, that things will die back down to normal and they'll just be in the three to 4% inflation rate. I don't know what I think about that. Yeah, some of it, some of it will, some of it's, you know, here to stay and a little bit bigger than they're really talking about. And we're not through this pandemic by any, any stretch of the imagination. We still have Delta that we're dealing with. And one of the world's leading ep epidemiologists came out and said, we're just at the beginning. Uh, when you look at vaccination rates across the world, where only you have maybe a tenth of the world population, if that much, vaccinated, um, we have not got this disease under control. And it's in those environments allowed to continue to mutate and create more and more devastating strains. So one school of thought is we're just at the beginning. We haven't even seen what this thing is going to become. But mm. yeah, I don't know. That's, you know. This was an individual that helped eradicate smallpox that, that uh, if you look at CNBC, there's an article out about it. It's just fascinating. Mm, wow. That really is. Yeah. Well, Paul, I appreciate you taking some time out today and sharing with us what you're doing at Wellings Capital. And um, where can people connect with you and find out more about what you're doing and get involved in, in what you're doing? Yeah, they can go to our website, wellingscapital.com. And on there, we have a free resource that allows people to understand how to make the jump from residential to commercial real estate investing and why it's at wellingscapital.com slash resources. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Greg.